chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 14. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Paul, the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship. In the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard? without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is God's holy and inspired, inerrant and unbreakable and everlasting word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. It is clear and pure. Your word is our fear. And Lord, we pray that the right preaching of it would produce within us a greater fear of you, a greater love and devotion for you in and through Christ and in the strength of your spirit. Our Father, we are in mighty need of your saving grace, your guiding wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you would take your word and apply it now, not only to us individually, but as a church, so that in all things we might leave here better prepared, better enabled to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says throughout the New Testament, throughout his writings, that he is a man set apart by Christ for The gospel. That's the language of telos. He's set apart for the gospel. He is called, he tells us, to give his life to the preaching of the gospel. And famously in Romans chapter 1, Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, the apostle Paul was a man entirely submitted 
and life, word, deed, and thought to the gospel. Paul was a man consumed with the gospel, and no part of his life made any sense at all outside of the gospel. Whatever he did, he did in light of how the gospel affected any decision, any choice, any word spoken, any vote given, any move to this place or that. Everything was done in light of upholding, supporting, and preaching and living unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the context of this letter that we've been studying through, Paul had previously been applying the gospel uh, to the issue of whether or not Christians could eat meat that had been sacrificed at pagan temples. His answer was that though the meat itself is clean because the idols at the temples are not gods, they, they don't have existence, and therefore mature Christians can with a clear conscience eat that meat. Nonetheless, in chapter 8, he defends the position that there were still many Christians who coming fresh out of that pagan culture still equated eating the meat, eating that meat with worshiping other gods. And so what Paul says essentially is for the sake of those brothers and sisters whose consciences are weak, we ought to, when we can, give up our rights. Give up our liberty, the liberty to eat that meat in order to not cause our weaker brother or sister to stumble. For Paul, the gospel, specifically Jesus Christ giving up his right to claim glory and praise in order to come to us and die as a criminal on the cross. That gospel models for us how we should then live. What are you giving up to help others? Grow closer to God. You may have the freedom to do something, but don't do it if it's going to spiritually ruin, spiritually harm someone else. There are gray areas in life where we may have some freedom to enjoy some liberty, some activity. But insofar as someone else might really stumble and be drawn into sin because of my action, well, then out of love, give that liberty up. I'll give up my right in order for this brother or that sister to fall more in love with Jesus. And look, we desperately need this kind of instruction today. We live in a world where for a lot of people, I am at the center of the story. Right? Life is a Hollywood movie where I'm the main character. And for many people, they grow older and begin to realize that the life they're living is not Hollywood movie main character kind of material, right? Your teens, your 20s, your 30s, you're just this main character and then, you know, you hit that midlife crisis and you're like, ah, this is not how I thought my life would go. And so instead of contentment, instead of reexamining the way they think about their own life, they instead become depressed, anxious, or escape into some activity that will numb them from false expectations, be it drugs, alcohol, video games, whatever. What Paul gives us here is a radical way of living life, which is, because of the gospel, always others focused. Focusing our attention on other people. And in so doing that, we cease to be so focused on ourselves, a.k.a. selfish, And therefore able to live lives that are 
free of anxiety, yes, but more importantly, live lives that are committed to loving others, loving God, maintaining unity, and bringing honor to Jesus Christ. The main punch of this passage is that Paul is able to do this, to give up his rights for others. Why? Because he's so concerned that the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, not be hindered. He knows that people stumble and people get offended over so many different little things. Isn't that so true? You can't say anything without constant critique. And what Paul is supremely concerned about is not letting little things offend and getting away in the way of the gospel, but at least just letting the gospel have its chance to offend you. If you're going to be offended by anything, Oh, may it be the gospel. That's the punchline of this whole passage. You can see it right there in the middle of verse 12. The whole first part of this passage, Paul is defending his rights, his entitlement to being paid and supported as a gospel preacher. But in verse 12, he drops the rhetorical bomb and says, look look at what he says in verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right right to be supported and paid by the church. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What he's doing is he's setting himself up as an example to the church. He's already told them, the Corinthians, back in chapter 8, to give up their rights and to give up their liberties to serve others, to help others grow closer to God and not sin. And so here he's saying, look, This is how I've practiced that very thing. Even though I ought to be supported by you for my work in preaching the gospel, nevertheless, I've given that up. I've not made use of this right. But rather I will, as he puts it, endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He has the credentials to support his right to be paid. Verses 1 through 3, he reminds them that he really is an apostle. He's not only seen, but he's been called by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, By the way, no one can call themselves an apostle, even though many do, if they've not seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This one biblical uh, prerequisite for apostleship should just cancel out the the volumes of apostles who are floating around today. He says, I've seen the risen Jesus Christ. On top of that, he says, the existence of the Corinthian church is evidence that Paul's ministry is a supernatural apostolic ministry. You're my seal. You're a, a stamp upon my own life that what I've done in preaching is proof positive that the God has blessed my preaching and therefore shows my apostleship. You believed in Jesus and you now exist as a church, says Paul, because of what Christ has done through me. And so as he says in verse three, that's his defense before anyone who would question his right to be supported. In verse four through 11, he lays out a really simple defense for why preachers and pastors should be financially Supported by the church. Interestingly, I think you could break this down into two main categories. One, through the category of natural law. What do we just see around us that makes sense 
from a natural law perspective, and, and secondly, revealed law. Uh, so here Paul uh, is dealing with the categories of natural law and revealed law. First, he gives what is the natural law or these kind of common society arguments. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, no one. Soldiers are paid either by a king or through the collected taxes of the people and therefore supported and can make a living for their efforts in being a soldier. Or again, he says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? This point is simple but poignant. If there is an exertion of labor and time and effort, which there is if a man is giving his life to preaching the gospel well, then that should be recognized and supported. Just as a side note, I, I preach this out of a deep sense of gratitude for a church who I think has honored this principle well. Uh, at no point in my time being here can I ever say uh, that um, Greenbelt Baptist Church has not given up your rights in order to take care of me and my family. And for that, I am incredibly, incredibly grateful. So I preach this not as a, uh, a heavy burden to say, ah, nudge, nudge, pick it up a little bit. No, I, I, I preach this almost with a, with a red face of saying, oh, you guys are doing this so well. The second line of reasoning Paul uses doesn't come from common society like farming or working as a soldier, but now from the word of God. Perhaps a, a, a harder point of logic to argue against. Look at verse 8. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? And here he actually quotes from Deuteronomy 25, where God, through Moses, gives the command that you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. His point? Just as an ox who is working to clear a field or or thresh a crop, ought to be able to glean from and eat from that crop, so too should a pastor be able to glean from his flock. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Though Paul brings this up to make a larger argument, we ought not skip over the importance of what he's teaching here. Again, Paul's words provide good arguments for why churches should provide a comfortable maintenance for pastors and their families. One that will allow them to do what God has called them to do in the church and beyond. Paul taught the same principle to the Galatians in the Galatian church. Quote, Galatians 6.6, 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Perhaps most importantly, Jesus is the one himself who establishes the principle when he says in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, that the worker deserves his wages. This is exactly why Paul concludes down in verse 14, that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. As Mark Dever puts the point very well, quote, money that the church spends on staff is one of its best investments and one that will bear fruit in growing the kingdom well. But again, why is Paul bringing this up? 
It's not to convince the Corinthian church that they need to support him financially. It's what? It's to make the point that Paul has given up this right. He's relinquished this right in order to not distract people away from the gospel. To the Corinthians, this was a radical departure from what was expected. They were conditioned culturally, much like we are today, to value everything in terms of money. How much money a person made determined their status. If you were wealthy, somehow magically you're able to like weigh in on cultural and political issues, right? Like, that guy's got a lot of money. He must be wise in, in any given point of view. Paul's like, eh, that's weird. No, that's not how that works. How much money a person makes doesn't determine status. And, and so in Corinth, if you were a public speaker, an orator in the Greek public square, you would have been judged on how good you were, not necessarily by your kind of rhetoric, but by how much money you made. How much support you garnered from the watching crowds. Remember how Paul began this letter, reminding his readers all the way back in chapter 2. Do you remember back there, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5? Paul says this, quote, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Perhaps he had a kind of stage fright. And then he says in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, Paul intentionally came preaching in a way that detracted from the cultural norm. He didn't want people to be impressed with his preaching skills. He wanted people to be impressed with Jesus Christ. And in line with that, he likewise refused to be paid for his preaching because he didn't want to be known as a preacher, preacher though he was. No, he wanted Jesus Christ to be known as a savior. Do you see? His mode of operation was to declare Christ and then fade into the background. Fade to black while Jesus took the spotlight. In a culture that valued people on their monetary status, Paul knew, Paul knew that if they start paying me, That's just going to get in the way. People are going to think, oh, here comes this guy, another orator, because Corinth is filled with him, and he's got this new thing called Christianity, and look how wealthy he is. Let's be clear here. Any true preacher of the gospel would preach the gospel whether he was paid for it or not. What motivates a man to preach the gospel isn't a price tag, but rather the glory of Christ's name. A deep desire to have Jesus become famous and known to be loved and trusted in and worshipped. Men preach Christ 
because men love Christ and they look around at a world which hates Christ. And and the man of God says, wait, what? You don't know what you don't know. Let me tell you about Jesus. The immeasurably glorious, ever faithful, always righteous Jesus. Jesus who was meek and lowly, who will not break a bruised reed. A faithful priest who is a sympathetic priest, yet sinless. He knows your struggles, yet he's strong. Who has felt every sorrow more deeply than anyone else, and yet he is divine joy incarnate. A man of God cannot put a price tag on what it means to bring someone to know and love our perfect Savior. Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Christ, the wonderful counselor. Mighty God, our Prince of Peace. He is the resurrection and the life. The Alpha and the Omega. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through knowing Him. He's the door through which we find life abundant. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the bridegroom, the beloved husband who secured his bride through his own shed blood as he hung upon a cross. He is our great and perfect prophet, our our only high priest, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Every square inch of existence, Jesus says, that's mine. Jesus is the author of life and the defeater of death. He is alive right now, life everlasting, and he is the king who will return. He is the divine son, the God-man, whose name is I Am. He's known as the Rose of Sharon, the Lagos who became flesh. He is eternal, the creator of all that exists. From him and through him was the universe made. It's Jesus who sustains all life, every breath, every heartbeat. Not a hair falls off of your head and Jesus doesn't know it. Jesus created and named every star. His power stretches past the reaches of our infinite universe. And it's Jesus who had you on his mind when he hung upon the cross. And his father poured out his infinite wrath and hate in order to punish him for your sins. It was this Jesus who confronted Paul, blinded him in his glory, knocked him off of his horse, and then called him to go and preach the good news of his resurrected life to the ends of the world. And do you think Paul would have responded to Jesus in that moment? Well, how much do you think I'll get paid, Jesus? No. For Paul, preaching doesn't just foster proper worship among the nations. Oh, dear friends, and I hope this is true for every single one of us in here. For Paul, preaching is worship. How could he put a price tag on what would already flow out of his heart as a natural response of praise? His evangelism and his preaching wasn't a duty by which he said, I hope I get a check for this. It was the natural response of being saved by a Savior. And he can't help but go out and tell the world about that Savior. I didn't deserve to be saved by him. And you don't either. And I want you to know that Jesus. This mirrors, doesn't it, the way in which Jesus gave up his own rights to make the Father known to us? Paul's ability to relinquish his rights to financial support pales in comparison 
to Christ's relinquishing of his right to glory. Giving up glory with the Father to make the Father known. The exercise of Christian freedom and our own individual rights must first always have the good of our brothers and sisters in view. And we, we can have that worldview when we clamp down upon and digest and just have it seep within us the good news of what Jesus has given up for us. Beholding the glory of God known through the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the greatest good. God has created us and by his spirit he will recreate us, make us born again to behold his glory in Christ. Oh, dear friends, what will you give up to help others behold the glory of God in Christ? I am deeply grateful for the ways in which you have relinquished your rights on parts of your paycheck to help support me and, and Carolyn and, 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 and many of the efforts that go on here. And we relinquish Significant portions of what we work hard for throughout the week to send that money to men who are in Thailand, who are in North Africa, who are in Zambia, trying to establish the glory of Christ's name to the ends of the world. Friends, what will we relinquish that is rightfully ours in order to have Christ go forth? If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, will you relinquish your right to do what you want to do? Jesus is king of kings. And your life is demanded by him. He offers you the opportunity to repent and turn now and to submit, to bow the knee and to give your life completely over to his lordship before the day when he returns and will establish his lordship, whether you repent or not. Dear friend, I pray that you will give up your own liberty and find true liberty, true freedom in Christ alone. Let's pray.